Hey, this is LGBTQ&A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Melissa Phoebos. Melissa is the author of Whip Smart, about her time as a dominatrix, and her new book is called Abandon Me. Stay tuned. Hey, Melissa. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, It feels a little weird saying your name, I have to be honest, after everything you wrote in the book about it. (laughs) Because you feel like you know me? I feel like I know you, and I feel like I know what saying your name, like, connotates. Oh, right, because there's a whole essay about my name. Yes. It's true. You know, I once walked into a meeting with an editor when I was, my agent and I were shopping the book, and I walked into the office, and this very sort of, like, well-composed editor, um was like, hi. And I was like, hi. And she was like, I know a lot about you. <laughs> I was like, it's true, but I know nothing about you. Right. Isn't that also kind of just like a given for like memoirs? Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, right? I'm used to it. Yeah. I mean, also, I guess it'd be, it's like very, not, it would be very bad if they were like, I don't know anything about you. Yeah. I just they read like, 300 so what's pages. Your story? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't tell you anything. Um, yeah. So you enter, I really like the book, by Thank the way. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, you entered each chapter with a, a thing, be it your mm-hmm. name, mm-hmm. an object, a piece of art, uh, as a vehicle to, like, to tell your story and to mm-hmm. reveal parts of yourself. Mm-hmm. Was that the intention from the beginning, or did that kind of happen in the writing process? It really sort of happened in the writing process. Like I'm a very type A, planning, pragmatic, big sister, top kind of person in life. And, um, and before I wrote this book, you know, with Whip Smart, I had an outline. It was very chronological. I had lots of notes. But with this book, I really had no idea where it was going when I started it. And I would really sort of just take those things, like I would have an obsession with my name and being curious about why I had such a strong reaction to it or my tattoos or whatever. Um, and I would just start sort of picking away at it and work myself into the essay. And I didn't really know what would come out until I got to the end of it. And I didn't know that they would all end up as part of the same book until I was at least halfway through. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. So you were just writing them to write them in the beginning? Mm -hmm. I was writing them. And I think, you know, I can be a little woo-woo about the creative process, but I think it's accurate. And I think I was in the midst of this incredibly intense personal experience, this very harrowing love affair, and also like meeting my birth father for the first time, all the things the book is about. And I think it was so intense while I was in it that I couldn't really handle thinking about writing a book about it or facing it all at once or what the whole story would be and so I was just like I'm just gonna write about my name you know and I was sort of um tricking myself into writing this thing that would be hard oh wow you mentioned the different like timelines you were jumping between writing about different times Mm -hmm. uh, really quickly within Mm -hmm. the passages Mm -hmm. and I was really really impressed that I was following I'm so it wasn't too I'm glad I pulled it off (laughs) Good. That's yeah. good to be impressed by yourself. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. Know, uh, I also think like it was a pretty organic process, and one of the ways that I sometimes describe the book when I try and mostly fail to describe the book is that I say it's about how sort of the conditions of our childhood inform our adult relationships, and so I think my hope is that it takes on kind of a natural progression when I'm being flip I say that it's about how my daddy issues turned into my lady issues (laughs) (laughs) but that that makes sense because I think those the childhood material sort of worked its way 
into the love affair narrative because I thought those things were connected. Yeah. And then also just like pragmatically, like daddy issues are so trendy right now. Like, are they? Yes. Oh my God, come on. <laughs> I mean, they should always be trendy because we always have them. <laughs> that's exactly, that's the subtitle for the show, actually. LGBTQ and A, daddy issues. Uh, or daddy lessons. Okay. So, um, so, so speaking of the harrowing, I think was your word for mm-hmm. like your love affair mm-hmm. and your meaning your birth father. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, were you writing the book while these were unfolding? I was. I wrote wow. not all of it, but probably two thirds of it, at least in the first draft stage, I wrote while I was in it. And then I sort of stopped, had to live the end of it. And then I could write the end of it. And then I had to go back and sort of be more honest about the things I couldn't be honest with myself about when I was, in. you know, I think when we're in relationships, particularly these incredibly intense sort of like working out our childhood, our daddy lessons, um, we sort of develop a story and we romanticize it or we're playing a role in our own mind. And that's not the truest version. And so after I finished it, and I was sort of on the other side of those experiences. I had to go back and be like, mm, actually. <laughs> yeah, because that distance is helpful sometimes. It is. it is. I also have a terrible memory. So I think, you know, it's a pretty common advice for writers that you should wait a good amount of time so you can have that objectivity about your own story. But I forget everything. I have to take tons of notes. And I generally write... If it's a very intense thing like this where I want to have that immediacy and have all the fine details, I have to write it pretty close to living it because it's just gone. Well, something that struck me was that you were writing about periods during addiction Mm -hmm. where you, uh, what I'm assuming is you have a clarity now being clean and sober that you did not have while living Mm -hmm. it. So is that compounded to having been on substances and having a bad memory? Yes, it is. And I think... You know, I think the way that my memory works and my memory of those times is that a lot of it sort of just blurs together. But there are these sort of standout moments, and they're usually the moments when there was some moment of realization or clarity, whether it was the worst moment or the moment of change. And luckily, those are the moments that are most important when you're writing your story. You know, you don't want to have just like the mundane um, grind of like finding heroin every day. Like you can, you don't want to detail all of that. You want to just be like, it was terrible. Here's a scene to tell you how terrible it was. The right. worst scene. And then here's where it changed. Yeah. yeah. Something that I think about too, is that these things that are so impactful in our lives mm-hmm. and that um, we are most known for, mm-hmm. uh, in your case, like you wrote uh, your last book, Whip Smart about mm-hmm. being a dominatrix. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hardly the, th- it's usually the things we don't look at and think about every day. Yeah. Consciously. Yeah, it's really true. I mean, I think for me, I am a very like fast moving, you know, I'm an addict by nature. Like I want to feel good all the time. I don't want to think about things that make me feel bad. I don't want to look at the ugly parts of my own behavior or personality or the ways I've been hurt or hurt people. But you have to do that if you want to grow up and you have to do that if you don't want to repeat those same behaviors. And for me, I think in many ways, writing has become this place where I'm not in the living of it. When I'm in the living of it, I'm like, la, 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 like, I don't want to think about it. And I often just sort of detach and survive, you know, and then but when I'm writing, I can stop writing if I need to, I can consult my therapist, I can consult my friends. And I'm able to sort of walk back through the experiences and get the lessons that are in there. And so in many ways, my sort of growth as a person um, almost always happens through my writing. Wow. You have, you have such a, a awareness and you're able to make like astute observations about what's happening in yourself. Is that because you've written about it or is that just you by nature? I think, well, I think it's mostly because I've written about it, but I do think that 
you know, I have this sort of curse or gift or burden or whatever of having a very extreme, addictive, somewhat compulsive, like, personality. I seek out these experiences, right? And that can be really dangerous, like, psychologically and physically in many cases. Um, But I also have this essential sort of curiosity about my own mind and those of other people. And I think the combination of those has helped me survive that former part of my personality and writing is an expression of it. And most of the insights that I have into my own behavior come through writing. But I do think I have an instinct. Like not everybody does that. Not everybody writes about having been a dominatrix and a heroin addict and being in crazy love affairs. But but I do. And a big part of that is because that's where I where I grow out of it. Gotcha. Can we define for the people listening and watching what a dominatrix is? Because it's a word that we use a lot, but I don't think we actually know. I mean, I actually read the book. Yeah, yeah. I, um, no, I know that's important. Usually if I'm giving a reading, I'm like, and if you don't know what a dominatrix is, just ask your dean after the reading or whatever. (laughs) Um, But a dominatrix is basically um, a sex worker who doesn't usually have sex intercourse with her clients. Um, And it consists mostly of role play. And the most common sort of iconic image of the dominatrix, which everybody's probably familiar with, is like the corseted, leather-booted, whip-wielding, shouting filthy insults at her client um, role. And I definitely played that role a lot, but um, but it's it's a, a big simplification of what I did. And basically any sort of powerful, iconic feminine role you can think of, mother, nurse, um, school teacher, customs officer, oh, <laughs> um, doctor, uh, I would play those roles and basically reenact scenarios that I think were often lifted straight out of my client's childhood. Like I was working out their daddy lessons. So these know? are the mommy issues. Mm-hmm. These wow. are the mommy, mommy lessons. I was teaching a lot of mommy lessons, but it, you know, I think the assumption is often that dominatrixes like hate men or are working out their anger. And that was basically never my observation about myself or the women I worked with. And actually, it was often a cathartic experience for my clients. Sometimes not, sometimes temporarily. Um, But the job required a really deep sense of empathy and an ability to sort of read the other person. Um, And no one that I knew of was sort of hated their clients or was working out a lot of anger. It was actually much more about sort of um, compassion and psychology and also just acting. It was kind of a, just an acting job. In That's many really ways. nice. <laughs> uh, well, you know what I'm saying. Okay. Yeah. I, I, well, I, what I mean by that is that I read it when it came out, like maybe mm-hmm. seven years ago ish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think it was such a hit because it was like the non-judgmental view. Right. And I was right. like, here's why I like did this. Yeah. Okay. Cause I mean, I walked into the experience thinking, I'm different. I'm not like these people. They must like be that sort of stereotype. And after spending like three years in that community, I thought, oh no, like this is not, you know, like the costumes, the um, sort of social stigma of it. There are like the more superficial aspects seem sort of deviant or outsider or whatever. But the interaction that actually took place in the dungeon wasn't that different from those experiences of my friends who are therapists or nurses or, you know, I'm a college professor now and there's actually a lot of similarities. Really? I sort of am uh, enacting this role of authority that people are seeking out And I have to lead them through an experience and sort of give them both what I observe them needing and also what they're telling me they need. And um, yeah, and it sort of requires that I use 
the same parts of my personality. I have to be really aware of the people that I'm working with. Um, I have to maintain an authority that feels both safe and in control. Um, and there's a reason why so many of my former Dom friends are now nurses or massage therapists or like they work in interaction. They're That's into people. Yeah. That's your next TED talk, like teaching through <laughs> like dominatrix. You know what? That's actually not a bad idea. Um, yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it's all role play. Mm-hmm. If you're in a relationship with somebody mm-hmm. and they're into role plays, is that mm-hmm. fun for you or is that like PTSD? You know, for, I think when I quit that job, I was like, never in my life will I ever be able, will that not feel like work? Um, And I don't really feel that anyway. Like, I haven't had a lot of experience with role play in my personal life. Um, But I think there's a difference between enacting a scene with someone who's not an intimate. And it is intimate in a way, but I don't bring, I didn't bring my sexuality into it in at all the same realm that I do with my actual partners. And with a partner, it's, it's, I have a different connection and, it's it has to more to do with our relationship and our connection than it does like whatever our costumes are if that makes sense yeah you know, it's a different realm entirely so i think it would be okay but if somebody wanted me to dress up like a nurse and like call them my baby boy i, I mean that would never happen anyway but um but i don't think i could really get on board yeah oh because th- with this it's a incomplete relationship it's not just like an exactly. open door session exactly and i think that's part of you know that's something i try to approach a lot in my work is sort of the way that sex and eroticism and sexuality is sort of like in our culture at large separated from the other aspects of our relationship it's like this other thing but it's not like sex is an expression of attachment or escapism or whatever it's connected to all the other aspects of our relating to other people yeah and that's why i was really like happy and like giddy to read it about hickeys <laughs> yeah like i don't like them but they excite me yes they're exciting and like sex and um intimacy it's it happens and then disappears mm-hmm. and like this is proof mm-hmm. it's like the playbill for a broadway show yep you know <laughs> <laughs> oh would that it was um no it's great that and, and i think it's particularly nice that you're not into hickeys but that you can also recognize that i'm glad that there's some universality there because i think we all want you know, like love and pleasure and excitement and all of that. It's ephemeral. It doesn't last, but we want it to. That's why we want diamond rings and promises that people will love us forever, even though there's no way to really promise that, yeah. you know? But I think it's it's a vulnerable and sort of, it's a tender thing. I have a lot of sort of affection for us as as humans for wanting that, even though I know it's impossible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think too, like they're exciting when they're covered by clothes and only you can see them. Mm-hmm. But when they're like public, it's just, yeah. who wants it's, to have that conversation? It's a little bit grody. It's a little bit immature, I think. Although I do love that secret or even like, I mean, I'm going to overshare, but, you know, if you're like in a hot relationship or in a new relationship and you're just fucking all the time and you have like little sex bruises or scratches or like soreness in your hips or whatever, there's like, it's like this little um, happy secret that you have. And I don't think it's just a sex thing. It's a like, yes, like somebody wants to touch me. Like I have this right now and there's proof, Yeah, you know? Yeah. I I think your students are very lucky that... uh, you have this background, and I'm sure they're aware of it, so they know that they they don't need to shy away from writing about these things. It's true. Almost every class that I teach, 
the students come into the class, they meet me, they see my tattoos, and I'm pretty, um, I don't think I relate to them exactly the same way that most of the other teachers do. And then they go Google me, and then I get this wave of their work that's like just pushing boundaries. They're like, I'm going to write about sex, I'm going to write about violent things, I'm going to write about orgasms or whatever. And none of that shocks me, of course. So once they do all of that, then actually I find that they get pretty intimate like they take real emotional risks on the page because i think they know that i'm willing to do that and also that there's nothing that's going to shock me yeah you know and then they can also like trust that you're judging them based on their actual work and not the content exactly exactly i think that's so used and that's part of why you know i i have friends sometimes who teach writing and they struggle sometimes with the fact that most of their students aren't going to be writers and that they're teaching them something that is never really going to materials but materialize. But for me, teaching nonfiction, I just believe that that's such a useful exercise for them to be able to give that to people to say, like, you can say these things out loud that you maybe thought you weren't or you were scared to. And you can have an experience of like being fully yourself and not having your family or people who love you and feel responsible be like, oh, my God, are you okay? Or why did you do that? We're just like, cool. So let's talk about the dialogue here, you know, and yeah. I think that can be really freeing in a way. Absolutely. And something that like we've talked about on the show before is that for me personally, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is that I didn't have, I'm a queer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't have a uh, stigma against like queer sex as mm-hmm. stigma against sex. Right. And it was like really uh, like groundbreaking when I was able to delineate that and be like, oh, wow, this is the actually the issue. Yeah, that's so, in- how old were you when you realized that? Oh, it's like nine to 12 months ago. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah. how would you not though? We get so many conflicting, unreasonable like prescriptions about what it should be or what it shouldn't. It's like, it takes a lot and a lot of support and strength of character and insight and experience to be able to define for yourself what it means because we're told from like birth all these things that it means and most of those have nothing to do with what our experience is going to be. I agree. And that's why I think it's so life-changing and possibly life-saving that when you grew up, your mom was this accepting woman and mm-hmm. on the bookshelf she had, was it Closer to Home? <laughs> Bisexuality yes. and Feminism. Yes, it's true. That's I amazing. Mean, it is amazing. Like my coming out story is the cutest coming out story. I'm going to tell it to you, the very short version. So when I was like, I guess I was f- probably 13 or 14 um, and I had this best friend and we were like attached at the hip, super close. And then we started making out. And so my mom, um, my parents were separated and my mom also had a best friend. And uh, my mom one day, I remember we were sitting at our breakfast counter and she was like, honey, I need to talk to you about something. And I was like, okay. So I sat down and she was like, you know, um, you might have feelings about this, but I just want you to know that Sharon and I are not just friends. And I was like, I know. Laura and I are not just friends either. And she was like, okay, phew. And then we went about our business. You, you know? each knew another secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, or she, and she actually was like, I knew it. I knew it. Um, yeah. So it was very like. That's amazing. It is amazing. I'm really grateful that I just grew up. Like I sort of knew I was queer before I even 
like by the time I was an adolescent, I was like, yeah, that's definitely going to, you know what I mean? And yeah. and I didn't really know what shape that would take, but I knew it was okay, at least in the community of my family, you know, and I had reference for it and I had literature for it and I found books by queer people. Um, so sort of I'm with you in that my issues around sex, because they definitely had plenty, had much more to do just with like sex in general and also like being a woman like being related to by straight men and um it was complicated right but sort of it wasn't about queer sex and in fact sort of as a queer woman i feel i've always felt you know because i've dated both women and men more women but um it's always been much harder for me to deal with relating to men sexually because there's so many scripts and so much like ugh around it and with queer sex there just wasn't there weren't so many messages telling me what I had to do. So I was able to like invent it and find my own pleasure and really sort of just experiment with what was the truest expression of like my connection and desire for another person. That's fascinating. Is that the, um, the same with the women that you've been with as well? Like yeah. less scripts? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've had those conversations with the friends of mine for sure, where it was like, we can just make it up, you know, like we could borrow some of those scripts if we want, but yeah. it's not going to be the same if we're both women. And so we don't feel as bound in them, but mainly we can just like see what feels good and figure it out. And there's like, I love that. Like, I feel really lucky to be queer for that reason, because I've been able to, like, discover myself in a more kind of innocent way. Yeah. When you did start, you dated women primarily growing up, though. Yeah. When you My fi- first relationships were mostly with women. So when you started, started getting attracted to men, was that, like, yeah. a big surprise to you? No. I mean, I think I always knew that I was attracted to men, um, but it was just complicated. Like... It it just brought, there was a lot of trouble in dating men and like how they related to me. And, you know, when I was like, I developed really early and I looked older than I, like I basically had the body. I looked, I was just like, looked like I do now, but with less wrinkles when I was like 12. And so, um, so I got all this attention from older men and like, didn't know how to navigate that and didn't really know how to say no when it was really painful and scary and, And I already knew that I could fall in love with women. So it just made more sense. And then I had a couple long-term relationships with men um, as an adult. And that was much better and fine. But I don't know. Yeah, I asked because I feel like the younger current generation is more easily able to, like, not have pressure around being like, you know, I actually commented into a dude. Yeah, they have, like, they grew up with the word queer being a thing or just like not having to name it or and when I grew up it was like you're gay you're straight or you're bisexual but nobody really wants to be bisexual yeah. <laughs> and if you're a, bi- a bisexual guy you're gay if you're a bisexual I, woman exactly. you're in a phase and I even have that bias even though I am like kind of a true bisexual and I mean I definitely like on the skin- Kinsey scale sort of like lean towards pretty gay but I yeah. definitely am attracted to men I've enjoyed sex with men but like I I still had that bias and like it was just it felt like bad choices. There was nothing on the menu that I really wanted, you know? Yeah. Do, do you find that your attractions uh, remain the same between sexes? Like, if you're into guys with long hair who like science, are you also into girls no. or gender nonconformers? I or have really? two different types. I have sort oh. of a man type and a, and a woman. Actually, you know what? As I'm saying this, I'm realizing it's not really true. I mean, in terms of looks... 
somewhat similar, but I generally like sort of like tall, super smart, funny, but like repressed anger, like some deep, like a swamp of issues underneath the surface um, and a lot of repression, which makes for very hot sex. Like I sort of like that among, you know, I've dated like men, women, trans people, unidentified people, and they all sort of have, or almost all of them have those trademarks, but I can also be attracted to blonde women and I've never been attracted to a blonde man in my entire life. Fascinating. So that's a difference. Do you have one type? <laughs> um, I have in like emotional and like a uh, mental type. Like what is it? Just like very like smart guys. Yeah. Um, I like them to have like good conversation skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I like confidence. Yes. Uh, but um, like physical wise, like I can't like. There's not a map. See, that's so nice. You have so many choices. I always just know. My friends are like, they meet someone and they're like, you're going to like that. Like, they I, just know. I wouldn't say I have choices because I'm, I'm so picky with like the intelligence. And that's, that's not true. something that I can like, just like talk myself out of. You might need to go to New York. There's so <laughs> many of those men there. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, but, oh, but speaking of like your addiction and mm-hmm. how like it kind of transfers into your like love life. Mm-hmm. You were you're this thing that I love that I wrote down. There it is. That you feel entitled to love whomever you want and have fallen in love fully and frequently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, I love that because I have the opposite of an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, like, don't have that in, like, my love life. Right. And I, like, I'm envious of that. Yeah, like, there's a way. And I think, you know, this book also deals with the ways that, in you know, part of what it deals with are the ways that sort of my addictive, like, very compelled, compulsive personality can manifest to detriment in relationships but I do have that like I feel entitled to what feels good and I've never I don't have any complex about who I love and so I have just flung myself into love sort of over and over again and I'm in you know it's funny and after this experience which was so harrowing and painful and really um difficult there was a part of me I took six months of celibacy for the first time in my entire life I've always been in relationships and it was amazing and on the other side I was like I don't know if I'm going to do that anymore. I don't know if I can freely do that because I might, you know, be scared. Do that meaning into relationships meaning or like celibacy? just jump in and be like, I'm oh, love, okay. you know, and just like go for it and be like, let me like drink your spit, you know? And, um, <laughs> and, but it turns out I can. I don't, it's like, it's relentless, you know? I just, I like, I love love and I, um, I love getting to know people and I love like intimacy. I'm just into it. Yeah. You know? what, what, did you do the six months of celibacy as like a detox? I kind of did. I mean, well, I had this experience with this very intense affair and, but I also had just been basically in consecutive monogamous relationships since I was a teenager to the age of like 34. And I thought, you know, I've never been alone with myself. I've never been alone. I don't even know, you know, and I'm very sort of interactive and reactive and I'm really comfortable sort of building my life around the other person and considering their needs. And I just do that automatically. And I thought like, I wonder what I would discover if I was alone. And it it was actually incredibly revealing. Like it was the most drama-free piece. It might've been like the best six months of my life. I was like, and I spent, you know, I really had this different kind of access to, what my preferences were. I discovered that like I have some like introverted characteristics. I sort of like to be alone. And I also was able to really be sort of fully present in my other relationships with my family and my friendships and my work. And I, you know, I highly recommend it to anyone who's sort of like an always in a relationship type of person. And I do think like 
I was just sort of tapped out. Like I, after this, the relationship in the book, I got into a few shorter relationships and I just like couldn't do it. Like I was just like 86. Like I just needed a break. And I'm really glad I took it because now I'm involved with someone new and with her, like I have more information about myself. Like I think I'm better at being in a relationship now because I spent that time alone. Yeah. I love that. I, I also, uh, you, you didn't expand on it in the book, but there's like this brief part of time where you dropped out of school mm-hmm. and you shaved your head yeah. and then you moved out of the house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I read online, I don't know if it's the same timeline overlapping, mm-hmm. that you also lived on a twin mattress in a pantry. Yeah, that's right. I did. W- where was that? That was in Boston. To me. Right after I moved out. There weren't a lot of details. In my mind, I'm imagining like a queer commune. Yeah. It was like. Commune has sort of like a hippie wholesome vibe and I was definitely it was a queer commune but we were like smoking crystal meth and like cigarettes and staying up all night and going to raves and stuff like that so it was like a queer commune (laughs) yeah I mean I do think it was like I grew up in a small town I had like a loving family but I was weird I was different I was queer I was like super smart and um had an addictive personality and I was an artist and I just like didn't have, I didn't really find my people in my hometown. It was a beautiful, it was a great place to grow up. But by the time I was like 15 or 16, I was like, I gotta get out of here. And so I did. And my parents, it wasn't, I didn't run away. Like I was like, I don't want to go to high school anymore. They're not teaching me how to be a writer. And they were like, okay. You know, cause I was so strong willed. And so, and they were like, if we say no, she's going to flee. So they were like, all right, how can we support you? And I moved out and like, yeah, it wasn't great that we were doing all those drugs, but I did sort of find my community. And that was one of the first times I was like, like I'm in the city and I, there's like, like girls to date. And my best friend was like this, like beautiful, like gay hairdresser man. And we would like sleep in the same bed and gossip all night. And like, I, it was, you know, I remember it as a pretty golden time actually. So how did you find that group? Um, I just sort of found that, you know, I was living in an apartment with some really good friends of mine from this like hippie summer camp that I'd gone to and my like new best friend moved in downstairs and was like cutting hair and like doing his paintings and having boys over. And I was like, hi. And he was like, hi. (laughs) And I just started hanging out down there. And then I was like, I'm moving downstairs. And they were like, okay. And then it was just sort of, it was one of those apartments where just like, it was a party every night. Somebody was always like sleeping on our couch. Like it was, there was like cat shit everywhere and like, um, stone ornament lawn ornaments we'd stole stolen out of our neighbor's yards. And, um, it's very luxurious. It was sort of like a kind of like grotesque luxury that I really treasured at the time. <laughs> That's so funny. That reminds, it's not the same at all, but it reminds me of like Michelle T. Yeah. The writer, like yeah. when she's living in these SF homes and yeah, parties and trash piling up. Exactly. But... Like you're kind of into the grossness of it and it feels sort of glorious. And I think like also you were writing, like I can't help but think you think like, oh, the torture artist, it's happening. Yeah. Like, no, I totally did. I had this like you know, I was like, yeah, we're like depraved and tortured and we love each other to the death. And it was like this dramatic and the drugs and alcohol were all a part of it. And, and that was totally fine. I give myself that, you know, it was like a fantasy I was living out, but I definitely wasn't getting a lot of writing done. And it was mostly after I like got sober and learned how to pay my bills and exercise regularly that I started finishing books. Oh my <laughs> God. Know? Well, because also like you dropped out of school to like educate yourself, but it seems like you actually did it though. I, I kind of, I mean, it's, I think back to, I was 
was like 14 when I decided to leave school. You were that young? I was, it was freshman year of high school. I went to freshman year of high school. So I was like 14 or 15. And I was just like, this is boring. They're not challenging me. None of these people actually want to do anything with their lives. And I'm going to be a famous writer. So I got to get out of here so that I can read like, you know, a nice nin and like smoke weed, which is what I did, you know. Um, And so, you know, I definitely like had a circuitous route, but I basically did what I set out to do you know like I sort of chased that thing that I knew I wanted to do from childhood really really doggedly and I got into a lot of trouble on the way but like I can say that right now I wouldn't change anything because I have this beautiful life yeah that's so impressive (laughs) I don't know if I can take credit for it as that because like you can I think I mean here's what I think I think that there are some people a lot of artists are like this where like I just wasn't qualified I've never been qualified to do anything else like I've been I can't, I literally tried to work in publishing in offices and I was just terrible at it. Like I couldn't really do anything else. So it was just like this process of elimination where I was like, all right, I can't function in high school. I can't function in this town. I can't work in an office. So I just like narrowed my choices down so that like the thing that I do is the only thing that I can do. And it just happens to be like the thing that I'm good at, you know? So it's lucky as much as impressive, I think. All right, I'll take that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you... So all along, though, you wanted to be a writer. Do you think Mm -hmm. that that colored the experiences, be it living in this home or being in dominatrix or doing heroin, knowing in the back of your mind, like, oh, I'm going to write about this. Like, this is going to be great material. You know what? I think it makes that makes sense. And I get asked that a lot, but it actually never was. I think I definitely had a like, I am a person who seeks adventure. I'm an artist. And maybe that colored my choices. But and, and maybe I just was sort of in denial about it. But I have never thought when I made a choice to do not a big life, maybe like a little kooky thing, but not like the big life decisions. I've never thought, never done it to write about it. And in fact, being a dominatrix, being in this relationship, meeting my birth father, whatever, I had, I never, I actually actively thought like, I'm not going to write about this, you know? And, and I, like when I became a dom, I was, I was a fiction writer and I was like, maybe I'll put a character in there who's a dominatrix, but whatever. And I didn't even see myself as a memoirist, but I knew I was a writer and I knew that it was an exceptional experience. So I did take notes and like save things because I was like, this is too weird. I have to save this stuff. Um, and then maybe now that might get harder as I get older. And now I have this reference for knowing that I usually write about my crazy experiences, but it's never been the plan. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, getting reacquainted with your birth father, mm-hmm. who's Native American. Mm-hmm. Since the book, have you taken on that as part of your identity, a Native American? No. Um, oh, I ask because you teach at an I know, I do. And that, like, I mean, you know, I do think in some ways I'm, like, drawn to that community or, like, that part of our history. As I think we all are drawn to parts of our history that have been, like, erased or aren't talked about. But I think because that was sort of an aspect of my identity that I was told about when I was little, but I had no context for what it meant. And so um, I just sort of pushed it to the side and thought like, I'm not entitled to that in any way, but it was still a thing. It was still a part of me. So I do think like my psyche was interested in figuring it out. Um, But I think that sort of the ways in which I like claim that identity are not public ways. They're not community ways. It's a very personal sort of like, this is what it meant to me. And this is how it led me to being interested and wanting to be honest and wanting to write about like that part of American history, which we still don't really talk about. Yes. And unfortunately, when we hear about Native Americans in the news, it's for something negative. I know. I know. It's, I think like even my students, like I bring sort of native writers um, work into my classrooms and they're like, 
wait, there's like actual communities of Native Americans still around? And I'm like, yes, yes, oh, there are, <laughs> you know. But I think that it also is sort of in the book, it, it I included that part of it in the book because it reflects so many of the other ways that I write in the book and that I've lived these aspects of my personality that I wanted to exile or erase or didn't know how to confront, like my addiction or um, ways that I love or like this father who I never knew I was like I don't know what to do with that so I'm just going to ignore it and pretend it doesn't mean anything and then ultimately I was like okay it means something and I'm going to have to figure what that is fascinating I, I keep hearing or reading different um, explanations for what it means to be a two spirit mm-hmm. is there a different direct translation in our like vernacular no I mean I think that that's sort of how queer people in some native communities refer to themselves but it's not i don't have any close experience of that so it's only in the most the vaguest sense okay i was curious um there's like a new memoir out and by a uh queer female who is a uh she's queer she's a lesbian and she it's like a two-spirit guide or journey oh i'm gonna Um, have to look that i don't know about that yeah it's uh by an elder it looks fascinating um i haven't started it yet but Previous to that, I thought Two Spirit encompassed more trans people as well. Yeah. But now, new reading, I don't know if that's true. So yeah, I, was, I don't know, but okay. I'm going to go read it too. Okay, we'll be back on the show to discuss. Okay. <laughs> Happy to. Happy to. Um, last thing, I was, I love the chapter, excuse me, the passage about um, early prayers written on, or inked on mm-hmm. the bodies of uh, animals. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so beautiful because you say like, Wait, wait, actually, you're here. I don't need to read you. Do you mind reading it? <laughs> no, I'm I remember happy in the to. beginning uh, about uh, like the yeah, divine. Yeah, I think that's in the first in the first one. Yeah, cool. That's the Thank second you. paragraph. The first books in creation were inked by hand on animal skins, and sitting with these pages under those soft lights, their textures, delicate as sloughed sheaths of faith, were enough to convince me that books were once bodies, that the bestial and the divine can reside in the same place. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's a, I mean, it's, that was an interesting passage for you to bring up, because I think, um... It's not about personal experience, but it is. it brings together sort of story and books and the body and also like the animal in us and the divine. And those are all sort of couplings that I think I make over and over and over again. Like I'm interested in the intersections of all those things. Absolutely. And it's from the Library of the American Indian Institute? Or oh, no, American? that's actually that's not... from this college I teach in New Jersey, oh. but their special collection has like oh. um, these books of ours, like prayer books. Because yeah. oh, I was going to, I was thinking too, like you don't like particularly identify with that side of yourself, yeah. but you still like come back to it. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think that for better or worse, like the things, the questions that exist in our minds, whether we're conscious about them or not, they drive a lot of the things that we're drawn to. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been so much fun. Um, What is next for you? I hate asking a question, but tell me. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm going to be on this book tour for a little while, but I'm working on some new essays. Um, We'll see what happens. More of the same, more sex, more body, more queer, more feelings. Great. That's what we like from you. <laughs> um, and if people want to find you online, should we send them to your Twitter account, your website? Sure. It's all the same. It's all at Melissa Phoebos, melissaphoebos.com. Fantastic. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. And I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. You can find all of our interviews on iTunes and YouTube. And if you really want to help us out, you can leave us a comment and subscribe on iTunes. See you next time. Thanks. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV Network. 
to watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the host only. Do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.